Welcome to the third episode of the Bushwick Book Club podcast, featuring music, talk, and snacks inspired by Steve Martin's books, Cruel Shoes and Born Standing Up. You're going to hear live performances from songwriters John S. Hall, Crystal Hawes, Storm Garner, Charlie Neeland, Nessa Grazing, Terry Radigan, and me, Susan Huang, plus comedian Tabitha Vidari, all recorded live from our last show at Barbez in Park Slope, Brooklyn, where we not only had new songs, but new book-inspired snacks from our resident literary chef, Jonathan Dressler. The conversation you hear takes place around my kitchen table in Bushwick. Let's go into the kitchen. All right. Welcome to the Bushwick Book Club podcast. We are here with one, two, three, four, five, six, I don't know, you know, Sunday's really not the time for counting. It's not the time for math, you know, but we're here together, uh, Bushwick Book Club songwriters who just participated in the last show, the Steve Martin Show. And why don't you introduce yourselves? I'm Storm. What do I say? Oh, I'm Storm Garner, and I've done a few Bushwick Book Clubs, and this time I did a song called, I've forgotten already, oh, A Room With A View slash Hi, Steve Martin, <laughs> from the imaginary perspective of his first great love, Stormy O'Martian. It's kind of yeah. like fan fiction. Live performance fan fiction. Oh, Charlie's here. Charlie? Hi, uh, Charlie Neeland, and I performed the song No Punchline at the recent Steve Martin Bushwick Book Club. And he's also recording everything right now. Yes, I'm watching the meters and recording. Oh my god, you're so much more agile with microphone stands than I am, I tell you. He's like a microphone stand whisperer. I like to call him Jonathan Dressler's here. Yeah, I'm um, Jonathan. I um, used to play a lot of instruments. I still play some of them. Uh, I like audio engineering, uh, although I might not be a, a microphone a, stand a, whisperer. A stand whisperer, uh, but it's really fun craft. And also, I'm a cook. And I made uh, several assorted snacks from the, uh, some of the short stories from Cruel Shoes. Uh, yeah. yeah! I'm Crystal Hawes, and I wrote a song called The Bohemian Way off of one of the stories in Cruel Shoes called The Bohemians. I'm John S. Hall, and I wrote something called The Secret of the Dogs, um, which was kind of inspired by... Uh, uh, cruel, cruel Shoes by Steve Martin. Yeah, there were a lot of dogs. There were a lot of dogs in his work. And, you know, as I was reading it, I noticed how much over the years I had, like, stolen, like, or, you know, been inspired by him, like, in other things I've written over the years. Really? Um, like... Yeah, I was thinking, like, I have this piece called The Leather Clown, which is, like, this clown that's, like, a dominatrix clown thing. And I thought, like, you know, that kind of w bizarre surrealistic juxtaposition of of ideas is kind of like Steve Martin-esque. And then throughout I could probably pick a bunch of things where I was probably thinking of like Steve Martin absurdities. Because mm. um, the absurdity of his comedy really struck me as a kid. I love that story that you told about laughing really hard. Wait a minute, my shoelace is untied, then he bends over and it's not untied. And he's like, oh I love playing these little jokes on myself. But so many of his jokes, like, really just struck home for me as a kid. I know. I just like picturing you, just, like, you know, doubled over with laughter, like a tiny, tiny John S. Hall. <laughs> making, this shit is crazy, huh? <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really funny. And any time he was on TV, I would catch him, if, if I could. I thought so, too. I, I, I saw him 
it really changed me. I, I bought the Let's Get Small album. Yeah. I listened to that so much. There's this really great thing. I watched it again recently when he's on Johnny Carson and he does a stand up and then he sits down on the couch and then Johnny Carson goes, well, I understand you have to leave and he, and he goes off this thing, right? And because that's a thing where like if you're a big celebrity, you like you have to go. You can't stay uh. on the couch for the whole hour and a half. Mm -hmm. But then he comes back. You know, he goes, I don't have to leave. I was, I was lying. I see all the big stars come on. They always have to leave. I just thought I'd say I had to leave, but I don't have to leave. I loved it so much. Yeah. Anyway, that, that was the kind of thing he would do. Just like play with the form all the time. That's what I really liked about your piece. It was, to me, it was really Steve Martin-esque um, storm in the sense that you were like mixing in music, but then the whole thing was just also about your presence. You know, as in Steve's live performance, the way he describes, you know, every single moment counted. And so we were like all like, connected to each, you know, facial expression and gesture that you did. And it all counted. And it was all like so like delightful, you know? It was really cool. I hope so. <laughs> it's interesting. I've, in previous Bushwick Book Club book songs that I've written, I've always like connected to something I can personally relate to in the material. And this one, honestly, I was stuck. I didn't, I'm like, I don't understand anything about comedy. I barely know who Steve Martin is. I mean, I know he's famous. I, I guess I've seen him in some movies. Um, and But all I could really relate to was the, you know, the trials and tribulations of being a, a working artist. Um, that I could totally relate yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then and this, this character, but that seemed a terrible thing to connect to, like his first girlfriend who seemed like a domineering woman who would always have boys wrapped around her little fingers and that's not something I'm like proud of in my past um, but it is a part of your past <laughs> it is <laughs> but then I was like you know that's not the approach I, I started writing a song about like how I not bullied but persuaded a lot of my ex-boyfriends to do things that maybe weren't optimal for them such as you know he mentions if Stormy had told me to go I'd look good in a burgundy ball gown I would have gone out and bought a burgundy ball gown well let me tell you I've, I've dressed up more than a few non-cross-dressing ah. <laughs> straight men <laughs> just because I felt like it oh, and God. they were wrapped around my little thing. Do you finger. have any pictures? Can we put them up? You know, yeah, as a no. <laughs> so I started writing a song about this and I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I really want to bring all my exes into the song. Um, so then my my next tactic was just acting, just like taking on that role of the imaginary character. And it was freeing because then I didn't have to like oh. deal with myself at all. I just became some imaginary version of do you think you might bring her back in some other, um, may she be a, a recurring character? I'd love to, but honestly, after we recorded that and you posted that video and it was like public, I was like, gosh, what if she found it? The real story of Marcia. <laughs> cool, that'd be another podcast. I'd be terrified. I feel, you know, it's terrible kind of taking a real person's... Oh, but it's, you know, no, it's wonderful. I thought it was I affectionate. Think. Yeah, I yeah. don't think it's, it's terrible. And also it's like, you know, it's it's fantasy, it's fiction. It is so. fantasy. It's very fantasy. And I, I think, I'm sorry, if I didn't know for sure that she was a real person, Stormy O'Martian, Steve Martin, it was a completely fictional creation. It sounds, creation. Good to, sounds to me, doesn't it? I don't oh, know. Her name was O'Martian? O'Martian. Well, that's that her, her married, married name. name. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I, all my best friends when I was little were Martians, so I was just like, this, <gasps> this is too good. <laughs> It feels newer than new 
And all that's missing now is you, dear. There's nothing to fear. You've tried so hard to get by. I find it easier to fly. Years, miles, and metaphors away from each other. We still lie down in the grass beneath the same moon sooner or later. These grounds will dry, these clouds will fly us to some gay ever after, where angels cry for joy around us singing. married name she's married to mr omarshan they have wikipedia pages they're christian authors and proselytizers so maybe they wouldn't laugh at your portrayal maybe they don't (laughs) have the internet maybe they don't laugh but what i could connect to and i feel like we'll all as artists connect to eventually is like we all had first loves and then we all you know went in different directions and had careers and some of us might be like more famous at some point for various things and how do you like reconcile that what and what Facebook. would an imaginary like yeah. Facebook reconnection uh, be like? Like, uh, hi, after all these years, like, do you still remember the car? Remember? Yeah, One lost thing? his virginity in a car with him. <laughs> you, you, you hooked onto that part. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I could relate to that. Use a condom. Yeah, yeah, he used a condom. That's right. Mm-hmm. I thought that was good. 
to, to put that in a memoir. I appreciate the detail. And there's one point when he's talking about sex and free love and how that, that was just the most wonderful thing at the time. And for like a short moment, uh, having sex was just some version of saying hello. <laughs> and how he imagined his um, ex-girlfriend and the guy she was seeing, you know, having sex in their big fancy Hollywood apartment. I'm recalling all the sex. There was, was a lot of sex, but there wasn't um, that much food. But who did make food was Jonathan Dressler. Yeah, uh, that's funny, because um, I was kind of reading through uh, First Born Standing Up, which I loved, um, and kind of earmarking any references to food. And there were almost zero uh, in Born Standing Up. In fact, he starts describing this like really fancy dinner party at a, at a big Hollywood uh, mansion, and He's using the detail to get into the paintings on the wall and everything. I'm like, okay, here it comes, and then there was nothing. No food. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, my job was was a little less abstract. Well, the way I went about it was find anything and then make that. So then, luckily, I read through Cruel Shoes. First, I found how to fold soup, and I was really interested into researching how to make soups a solid. I uh, did. I made soup a solid. What? It, it's yeah. the broth from a chicken that I made, and I just saved it because I knew it would harden into a jelly, and I love that texture of jelly things. And so I kind of like this, even though it might be kind of gross because it's like a savory yeah, it, jelly. It looks, yeah. I mean, aspic was like, popular in the 50s with Julia Child, right? Right, yeah. But not so much anymore, except in my refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks like um, the same consistency as the uh, cranberry dressing or something. Yeah, but, yeah so uh, there you go. Well, I liked how he's, um, you know, the idea of someone sitting in an office uh, dipping a chip into their like vest pocket is so kind of hilarious to me. So we made uh, onion dip. Uh, what else? Um, oh, and the diet, the, what's the name of the diet and the in cruel shoes? Um, Dr. Fitzky's Astrology Diet. Dr. Fitzky's Lucky Astrology Diet. Yeah, yeah, so that one was hilarious to me. Um, mm -hmm. Month one is like, what was it, one, one egg? Like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then second month a raisin. Does that mean for the whole month? Or yeah, it's mostly it's a fast. <laughs> um, and then, you know, pie with cream and sauce. So uh, You're lucky that, if you survive. That's the yeah. luck of the night. So there, and then finally, you know, here it is at the back of the second book. I found some, some stuff I could work with. Uh, so we made stuff based on that. And, you know, it was fun. It was uh, kind of a nice exercise, maybe similar to what you all are doing with song. Mm -hmm where you kind of force yourself into restraint and, uh, you know, find something that's going to work and then do it instead of, you know, the whole uh, dilemma of starting on a blank canvas. So it's fun. That was, that was, it was simple and really fun. So we I'm glad enjoyed to contribute. it. Yeah. That yeah. was so awesome. I want to ask, did you ever consider on page 178 of Born Standing Up the, uh, it's not delectably described. Then I would have a room service dinner this after he's famous. And the only thing on the hotel menu that fit my fishitarian diet was breaded fried shrimp with uh -huh. the texture of sandpaper. Uh -huh. Really, just the ketchup delivery system. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one too. I think I earmarked that. But that then sounds you, awesome. You, you would have messed it up if you actually made it good, though. Yeah. Was a moral uh, dilemma. <laughs> yeah. Well, I th yeah, I saw that one, but uh, I just kind of blew past it. I can't wait to see what you come up with for Amy Schumer's book. Yeah, I'm hoping July. she has some like self-deprecating like the food moments or something. I don't know. I think she, she may have a few. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. I'm excited. Okay. Excellent. Woohoo! Yeah. All right, Crystal. Talk about your song. You've been playing guitar and accompanying yourself on guitar for these Bushwick Book Club performances, and that's not usual for you, right? No. No, I do it privately <laughs> all the time. Um, and for little kids who have a less discerning ear. They're like, no, that chord was wrong, Miss Crystal. That never happens with like three year olds. So, 
yes, this is my second book club show song. Um, and I'm like playing guitar, which is a scary thing for me <laughs> because the song's new and the chords are potentially new. Right. Also, um, maybe not new, but doing them together is new. Um, and I tried being funny uh -huh. in this song. I'm not sure if it, okay, I was being sarcastic, which is, I think, a thing that Steve Martin is often. I don't know if it came across, um, but reading Cruel Shoes, which was what I read first, was fun. Like, it was interesting. I found, like, this one short story. It was called The Bohemians, but the thing that I connected to was the reference all the kids' names, and there were like seven kids, and the last kid didn't even get his own name. He was just like Biff number two, and I <clears throat> am number four of four kids, so I was always called like the dog's name, all of the other children's names, and then like Crystal, <laughs> often. So I connected to that and then just thought this family's trying to be bohemian, but they have like regular jobs, and they do all the regular things, it's just a different perspective. They're casting their normal life as like something very bohemian. Like she creates Created. breakfast each morning from scratch. And the kids, like, cause I have, I like a lot of poop humor, pardon. But like they make a reference to that in the song. Like the kids make something special every morning, but they flush it away. And I'm like, this They're is very like, creative. yeah, exactly. But they usually flush their art or, you know, I wasn't like sure what they were getting at, but I took it to be like, the dad has a job and he gets paychecks like everyone else. But to the kids, they just like get these slips of paper with numbers on them that you make into money. So like, sometimes I want to make my life like that, like my normal thing yeah. that I'm doing. Like I do that every yeah, day. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> it's not really what it is. I'm not really just riding the train. I'm like doing the thing. I always want to try to be the best. Each morning as I sit upon my throne, my porcelain commode. And mom, she always hard, not working at a job. And dad admires neighbors with hair on their faces, so chase it. I save it. That's a bohemian way. We go barefoot on Tuesdays. That's the Bohemian way. We share everything, everything. Unless your name's on it, name's on it, name's on it. That's the Bohemian way. I was the youngest of the brood. only one to go to nature school and I would pick up all the slips the dad turned into money now it's funny that he gave it to my big brother Biff we have the same name Everything that's the Bohemian way. We go barefoot on Tuesdays. That's the Bohemian way. We share everything, everything. Unless your name's on it, name's on it, name's on it. 
well, my name's on it, name's on it, name's on it. I'm fifth number two. <laughs> I liked Cruel Shoes, and then I went back after the show and read Born Standing Up. Okay. And I was saying, like, it just informed the stories, like knowing him and like knowing his thought process. He's like such a thoughtful comedian. Mm -hmm. He's so logical in the way that he approaches like writing jokes mm -hmm. or creating his art. Yeah. It's such an interesting mix of intellectual concept and thought and then what he can do physically and how that you know appeals like without words and yet there's like a lot of thought that goes into the words so it's like a neat mixture of, of both that's like what initially struck me about Steve Martin was just how physically you know beautiful and agile he could move you know the way he could move his body it's just like I would always just you know marvel at that I'm a sucker for you know choreographed dance moves as you know <laughs> and um, or any kind of dance moves I you so, know yeah. so when I would see Steve Martin move I'm like oh how does he make his body move like it's jello it doesn't have any bones it's awesome you know I'd be just yeah. you know wonder you know Ooh. and he, he really talks about that when he yeah. talks about the E. Cummings quote <laughs> precision that creates movement. like the like the burlesque comedian I am I am abnormally fond of the precision which creates movement and he says that like he was always intrigued with that quote, but he didn't re understand it until 10 years later when he was into his stand-up career. And uh, I like how he said also that his comedy is getting smarter and dumber at the same time. Yeah, that I was, love that. That's a really good quote. Talk about your song, Charlie. Oh, okay. At first, I felt really kind of rushed, so I was really drawn to just writing a song from Cruel Shoes because they were all such short little ideas, and I thought, oh, many of these could be songs, you know? And so I was kind of reading through it and picking out ideas. And at the same time, everyone started talking about Born Standing Up. And I was like, well, I think I'll get it on Kindle. So then I just got really pulled in by the narrative and the story of a creative person. And, and what really got me is that this one night, I was really trying to burn through it. And as usual, I woke up at 2 AM and I decided I'm going to read a substantial amount tonight. So I read it about four hours between 2 and 6 AM. And that's when I got to the part of the book when he was on the road and he was really honing this conceptual idea of his comedy. And he talked about watching the television channels go dark and sitting staring at the ceiling. And I was like, wow. I just felt such a kinship with that moment. And I was like, I do this all the time. So I was like, okay, okay, I see. I can really write a song out of this story. And what I really liked about it was how he took traditional forms of vaudeville and magic and he put them together and he'd always been fishing around in that area like a traditional vaudeville comic but he was also studying philosophy and he had this aha moment where he said let's take out the punchline and let the audience decide where to laugh and actually cause discomfort create tension until the audience has to laugh somewhere yeah. and then they can decide where to laugh themselves he didn't like the mechanical nature of telling jokes and he like pulled the rug out when he discovers that, I was like, okay, okay, that's my chorus, you know? And so then, I don't know, I just found all of this imagery that worked really well. I love the image of him trying to make the waitresses laugh. And uh, it, it just all made a really good narrative for a song that even if you don't know what the song's about, it just had a life of its own. So the song had this hypnotic quality. It just seemed to create a mood that he was sustaining in the book.
channels all sang off Private lunar softly glowing light Until you get it right Take a part and put it back together Till the inspiration comes Why not let them all decide When to laugh and when to feel numb The curing cause of solitude and magic Disney interludes can wait The magic and the minstrel you were not enough to keep the muse awake And what you tried to make So here we are in God knows where Making sure you make the waitress laugh which creates the movement doesn't really want your autograph No punchline No grand design No yours and mine No punchline is mine, no yours and mine, no grand design, ah, no punchline, no danger sign, the pleasure is mine. No grand design You'll never be mine One, two, three o'clock You wonder where the grudge is locked away Tighter that you tie the knot, the more what you create comes out to play. And what you tried to say, you light the stick of dynamite, surprised that you can be so nonchalant. And the one you could love you, they will never say exactly what you want. No punchline, no danger sign, no yours and mine. No punchline, the pleasure is mine. No grand design You'll never be mine ah, No punchline No grand design 
never be mine. It felt successful to me right away. I didn't go through a phase of hating it. It was <laughs> hard me, but so fucking beautiful. Yeah. Oh, thank it you. It was yeah. really oh. fucking impressive. And it was just so impressive that you took such a fascinating aspect of his comedy or his process and the you know, he's like, artistic statement, but it was just mind-blowing to me that you actually managed to distill that into his song form, something so conceptual. Well, it was very cinematic. Like I said, I, I was sitting in my room in the dark with just a few lights on reading it and picturing him sitting in his hotel room doing it. And I was like, oh, it just turned into like a little movie. And then I also had a real identification with Steve Martin when I was about like 13 or 14 or 15. And when he came along, it just really opened everything up at the same time as Saturday Night Live came along and mm. his stand-up just really struck me. We listened to that Let's Get Small album all the time. And then um, when we had finished our songs, Susan and I were just practicing. We decided, let's go and watch some of his stand-up now that we've finished the songs. And I played that Let's Get Small album and I, God, I remembered every joke. Mm -hmm. I, I, hadn't listened, I hadn't heard it in like 25 years, but like the there's yeah, so I was many. really looking forward to that research. I knew that's, that, that that's what I was going to do. I was uh -huh. like, I have to do research, so I have to watch some Steve Martin stand-up. And I was like, yeah! Um, yeah, it was really fun. And I, I wanted to have the songs done first so I could really relax and enjoy it. You, know? you did a boom picture, boom picture, and then you... Did oh, a yeah. very minimal piano thing. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought it needed to be have like Have you done that before? Thing. I haven't seen you do, do that before. Like a beatboxing? Like a loopy beatboxing. I like to play my own rhythms usually, but then it's like, oh, I don't know. It was a way to to, to, to get what I needed. But writing for this uh, book, you know, I wanted it to be something, and I thought it, it would need to be a lot more of a song song, and then what it required was just, like, listening to the words and, like, really listening to myself and then trying to hear, oh, okay, here's the one bass line. Oh, okay, this phrase can go here, and then like, just paying attention to the phrasing. So the song about timing became all about timing. All right, I'm going to go with that. All right, <laughs> we're going with that. All this time. It's just timing all this time It's just timing, it got so good The audiences wouldn't fit in anything But stadiums so big They swallowed up all the fun All the nuance and experimentation you studied since you were twelve with mail order magic tricks naivety and not much else it's just a me people laugh at every damn thing now like what time does the movie start Down low, the waiters wear 
someone needs an autograph for her niece You'll wonder if it's worth the doors you bang When someone asks, hey, aren't you that Steve Martin classic rock and jazz and stuff like that. And then what kind of um, music were you drawn to that was different from what you grew up with? Um, I got really, really into Phantom of the Opera and just became obsessed. So, I, and like, like I, I was in that for a while into, in a very like melodramatic sort of like mm-hmm. narrative uh, based music kind of place. Then I started listening to more of that like uh, indie rock, but it's like these mm-hmm. big indie bands like Arcade Fire. So what was your experience like writing for Bush Book Club? Was it different from your normal songwriting? Do you have, what is your normal songwriting? I have a lot of questions. Well, I think I chose a similar approach to my normal songwriting, mm-hmm. which is like start with chords and a melody and then like flesh in with the lyrics. So I've always been told not to have a formula mm-hmm. to write. And so I, I try not to, but I do have like a sequence of like steps that I take. So I guess just starting on the guitar with ideas that I like, and I write either in like standard tuning or like open D tuning. What was the tuning for this one? Open D. Okay. So it's very easy to get like really nice sounds out of open D tuning. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. That's neat because I, I don't play guitar, so mm-hmm. I don't know about all these like special tunings and how they can affect your songwriting. Gotcha. But you know what? 
I'm going to ask Charlie how to do an open D tuning, and then maybe he'll show me, and maybe I'll write my next song in an open D tuning and see what happens. Yeah. Because I've never done it before, and also I don't even play the guitar. <laughs> well, if you don't play guitar, it's a great place to start, actually. Because, do you know Mitski? No. Okay. Well, That's another thing I don't know. Yes. I'm so glad I'm talking to you. It's very <laughs> educational. Well, she also studied at Purchase, like, studio composition, and uh, didn't play guitar at all, but when she graduated, just started playing by tuning the guitar to open D, and, like, what you can do is, because it's an open tuning, you, know, you can just like put your whole finger on the fretboard and make a new chord and so she would just play like reaching her hand over the top and just sliding the chords around and stuff like that so it was totally badass and cool that's where I got it I guess Uh (laughs) cool I didn't Keith Richards use an open D tuning sometimes too and he did all kinds of crazy shit to like to experiment with with different tunings from what I read of his book which we did several years ago for book club Mm -hmm. Uh, did you read that one I think it was called life anyway it's a really good book It'll make you fall in love with the Rolling Stones if you haven't already. (laughs) The melodic idea for the song, did you already have that floating around before you started writing or reading the book, or was it something that came to you while you were reading? Um, Well, while I was reading the book, I actually read it on my phone, uh, and it wasn't really till the end that I started thinking, like, oh, I found something that I can, like, grab onto Mm -hmm. songwriting-wise, because when Steve Martin revisits, like, his old theater that he used to uh, work at, it's, it's kind of like a moment of, of nostalgia and reflection, and I'm, like, very nostalgic, so mm. I've tried to correct this, but it's... Just it's only getting worse, isn't it? <laughs> the more life you have, like, <laughs> The more you have to be nostalgic about, right? Yeah. The more life you live. Uh, I didn't have any of the ideas floating around already. I will say that I used some of my similar habits with that song, like, I guess... I really get drawn to like major seventh chords and stuff like that, and like I so I so it just started. It just like sounds that. like an instant classic already. You know what I mean? It sounds yeah. like a song that's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. To me, it sounds really like Patsy Cline-ish and like that old kind of country that I like so much. Was anything surprising about working in this way or writing in this way for a Bush Book Club? It was different because I felt the need to embody a character as opposed to like put my own feelings into it, but at the same time like connect to it. Mm-hmm. So, Right. It's a neat experience, whichever way you approach it. What's interesting to me about it is that even when you're trying to convey something that a character you're reading is feeling, yourself always comes through. Yeah. And what was it like playing the show? Oh, well, the show was great. I absolutely, I had a ball because when I first came back to New York after college, I really wanted to be in a book club. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to talk about books with other people because I really, for me, reading has always been kind of a a very solitary experience. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of ironic that I didn't find one until I was just about to leave. But just seeing everyone's different takes on it and expressed in song yeah. was really special. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. So it's exciting. And then to be able to talk to people about it, it's great. Yeah. And I'm so uh, glad you enjoyed that. I especially loved Storm's stormy cosplay. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Yeah. She was amazing. That was great. I'm so glad you could you yeah. could join this one. <laughs> so I can't wait to hear more and like to see what you do um, in Seattle with Bushwick Book Club Seattle. Jeff, you listening? Jeff, <laughs> you, you know you got you got another great songwriter coming your way. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for talking with me. The open dark as dream, a ray of light. I 
red curtain The ghost of my soul memory Still lingers in my mind Echoes through the empty And also reading Born Standing Up and like hearing about how successful he was with like getting women. Yeah, then surprising. I went back and I was like, you're like, Steve, hot. you're hot. Like, put that white suit on. I was like, really? Like, well, uh, when I watched the stand up, that's what struck me too is that like it was an hour and a half of him just being high wattage delightful. Yeah. Yeah. Like he just had to be lovable for like an hour and a half. And of course, there was so much skill and craft in, in that, but still, like the amount of energy and just like, Lovable, hour and a half, boom, you know, it's like, yeah, you couldn't not fall in love with him. Do you think that his popularity relied on what else was happening in that time? Because, to be honest, I, I really respect his craft and his, his work is brilliant. I, I kind of don't get it. I, no, he talked he, about he, that. Like, he talked about how earlier, like they, um, there wasn't like room in popular culture for that silliness yeah. to exist, and then and then you know after a certain period, you know, it, right. it allowed so for little, that. It's like time sensitive. And also the way he describes comedy, he says that it's um, a, a reaction to what is happening, and that was the way he comforted yeah, himself because yeah. this man had some anxiety. If he's staying up at night worried that what if there's after a while there's nothing to write about uh, to be funny, you know, mm -hmm. like that that was what he was worried about, yeah. Yeah. and so he comforted himself with the that oh comedy is a response to what's happening and there's always something happening phew now I love sleep oh, well, I yeah. think it was a, it was a reaction you know that you think of the other comedy that was going on of like George Carlin or Richard Pryor that was very topical very funny but very uh, culturally referenced mm -hmm. and he decided to sidestep that um, not completely but like mostly and do this sort of like updated version of vaudeville yeah. with this surreal spin on it and I don't know, to me, it seemed really new when it happened. Right. But recently, 
like when I was looking at the YouTube videos, I was looking at the comments, and all these people are like, "This is funny." That's what I'm getting. I wonder yeah. if people are younger. Oh, that right. so and and and, if, and a person that I know on Facebook, who's who's, <laughs> who's like a millennial kind of age person, yeah. which is younger than me. Um, <laughs> by the way, you can't tell on the radio yeah. <laughs> or a podcast, or whatever this is. But um, you can't tell in real life that much either. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. But but. In reaction to our thing, I, it had to be, because it's not a coincidence, mm-hmm. he posted this thing that's like, can it be okay that I just say that Steve Martin is not funny at all? <laughs> this, this is the week of our show. He posted this thing, and all of his friends sort of chimed in, yay or nay. But I was like, wow. Yeah. It's, it's really, he has a sort of like um, galvanizing effect of either yeah. like, you really get it, or you're really like, uh. Yeah, I- I think that's right. I mean, people don't say that about George Carlin or yeah. Richard Pryor, whether or not he's funny, right? And I think it maybe is because they're topical comedians. But people like are galvanizing figures, Steve Martin, and I think Kaufman, Andy Kaufman as well, right. you know, who is similarly, you know, to the side of what most comics are doing. And then, like, almost you would almost think like a Jerry Seinfeld kind of comes along as an antidote to mm-hmm. this silliness that was like sort of sweeping the nation for a, t- a period and people were relieved to and I found back. Seinfeld kind of disappointing for that reason because I really embraced Andy Kaufman and Steve Martin yeah um, but and they were know, both on Saturday Night Live but I also liked Carlin and Pryor yeah. and you know yeah. so well as a, a fix for that that problem the, the pair of books was brilliant uh, because yeah. I, I really think if I had read them in the opposite Cruel Shears first, I would have been upset or disappointed or something. But I got so into like reading about his craft and how hard he worked and his practice and precision and logic that as, as soon as I slipped right into Cruel Shoes, I was laughing out loud. Mm-hmm. And I really don't know if I would have if I hadn't read about all the thought and work that went into that you know page and a half story. So it's, it's kind of nice to, to see th- this side of an artist's work. I wish more people would tell this part of their story where, where they were doing, you know, 30 shows a week in the back of some little uh, place and, and how each time you get a half a percent better at this one aspect of it. And it's nice to see that in any craft. I mean, I don't know much about comedy, but it's just a real treat to get that level of detail about the work he put into it. Right. Yeah. And that actually reminds me of something I wanted to ask you, John, because during your performance... You know, we did what we what I've done with you a few times, which is go on stage and really not know what the hell's going to happen because we've never done it before. Right. We have a vague outline. We, we have an intention. Rehearse, yeah. We didn't rehearse, but it's like okay, yeah, and you jump in and you do it. And um, part of that spontaneity was a part of like Steve Martin's work too, along with the craft, right? Like there were times when that he described um, like spontaneously, like taking the crowd to go do this thing, and he it didn't seem like yeah. it was planned out, you know. Yeah, and yeah. He would, like walk out okay. of the theater and. And, and Kaufman did that too. Actually, okay. <laughs> yeah, like he took people like after a show on the Staten Island uh-huh. Ferry. That sounds and, like and a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we should do that for the, for the Steve Martin show. Maybe we'll do yeah. it for yeah. show right yeah. But I was wondering, like, were you always so comfortable with being spontaneous like that in your performance, or is that something that you developed, or that you got more comfortable with later? You know. This is I'm I'm ashamed to admit it, but I'm kind I'm very lazy, you know. Like I'm I don't prepare very much. This is what reading the the Born Standing Up made me realize. You know, this is why um, I'm not 
you know, and I've never been that successful because I don't yeah, have the patience really often, to so work. That's good. <laughs> I don't have the patience to work that hard. Mm. You know, um, to to do it over and over again the same way over and over again. So with this piece, I thought if we got together and rehearsed it a few times, uh-huh. I would get sick of it, uh-huh. and then it wouldn't feel exciting okay. on, in the moment. So, so it was my selfish laziness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I like that. I don't but, think you, should, you need any shame around it, but you know, it's just my personal opinion. Well, shame. <laughs> I, do, I do shame well, usually. Really? We should have a contest. The leader of the pack sat across from me with her wolf-like demeanor and more hardcore than thou attitude, and answered every question with only a stare, a stare that spoke volumes of emptiness. As I tried to maintain control, I reminded myself what happened the last time I lost my temper during an interrogation. I had promised my children and their parents and my parents and their children that that would never happen again. But I had let everyone down before, repeatedly. It had, in fact, been a long, long time since I had pleasantly surprised anyone. Part two, the dogs who shot. With the help of the one-way mirror, I was able to discover by closely observing the signals the dogs made to each other when I was out of the room that the secret of the dogs had something to do with shooting, but that was all I was able to glean. The dogs remained sly and circumspect. Perhaps there had been gunplay, or perhaps the dogs were shooting each other with crystal meth or heroin, although not one of them appeared to be under the influence of anything under, uh, other than their leader's firm control. I admired her greatly, but I would not let myself get seduced. I remembered the last time I had let myself be seduced, and I had promised myself it wouldn't happen again this year. But her eyes, her cold, gray, maniacal, powerful, penetrating, lupine eyes made me fear I would relapse that I would soon be eating out of her bowl, as it were. Part three, the dogs who shot marbles. Well, it definitely wasn't violence, and it definitely wasn't drugs. These dogs seemed to be running some kind of gambling ring. And when I returned from my dinner break, in one corner of the holding cell, there was a circle of chalk, which I later learned was a copy of the Caucasian chalk circle. But in the middle of the floor was an actual circle drawn with actual chalk and several marbles, some inside the circle, but most of them outside. And one marble was wedged between the pages of Bertolt Brecht's masterpiece. The leader, who never gave me her name, but to whom I now referred in my heart and soul and mind as the she-wolf, was staring at me with a sense of entitlement, if not complete ownership. Her cruel eyes continued to mock me without words, because words between us were as, as impossible as they were unnecessary. But we both knew that the hunter had been captured by the game. Part four, the dogs who shot marbles out of their asses. Things, things took an impossible and yet somehow inevitable turn when by the end of the evening I had lost everything I owned in a single game of marbles to the dogs. I had figured what kind of aim could they possibly have shooting marbles out of their butts. 
I have been taken in by the seemingly haphazard scattering of marbles outside the ring that clearly was a ruse to elicit false confidence. So I put up everything, the house, the SUV, my 40% interest in the sweatshop. I have been wanting to unload the sweatshop for years, the market in sweat having never recovered from the 2008 crash. But it was I who was sweating profusely after several dogs with remarkable sphincter control controlled the game from start to finish. The she-wolf shot my shooter out of the ring while never once breaking her stare, her eyes telling me what I already knew. I had lost everything. I had been stripped naked. I would wear the collar, and I would be going out for the walk. Storm Garner, uh, Crystal Halls, <laughs> Susan, Susan Huang, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so let me explain this food here, um, speaking of shame. Um, this food, it's inspired by Born Standing Up, and it's called Joyless Parent Pancakes. Okay, because apparently what you need to be a comedian is like a, a parent who doesn't love you, mm. or who will withhold love or something, or cause uh, a lot of pain, right? That's what he was saying, you know, is a kind of a requirement. And I've heard many comedians say this. I was listening to NPR just the other day, and that guy who worked with Dave Chappelle, and he was just saying his father did not love him at all, admitted that on his deathbed, you know, and said, actually, yeah, I, did, I didn't love you, you know? And, 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 he, and he's very funny. Um, and, and, and Tabitha had that joke in her act for the night, where, where she was like, yeah, the mother's asking, what should I do to support my girl who wants to do comedy? And she's like, well, you could stop loving her. Yeah. <laughs> so these are joyless parent pancakes. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> I made them out of very dark chocolate. It's an extra dark chocolate that Hershey's makes, I guess, and no sugar. There's no sweetness. <laughs> so it's uh, flax seeds, coconut flour, eggs. Um, I, I grated some uh, fresh ginger, and it's um, a shit ton of this cocoa powder. And what you're going to do is eat this plain thing with berries and uh, a puree of, I was trying to think of a non-dairy version of whipped cream, well, but the closest I came is this puree of kabocha squash with coconut oil, which is delicious. And it has like a fluffy texture, so that'll be like your whipped cream-ish thing. And, and meanwhile, and, and berries, because you know what the best thing about a joyless parent is? It makes all the sweet stuff even sweeter. It makes you really need funny, right? So, so, so you'll take funny any way you can get it. Um, yeah, uh, so I am actually a comedian. Um, it's, it's horrible. I don't recommend doing that. Um, and this woman I know is like, oh, my daughter loves, she's like seven years old. She loves Amy Poehler. She wants to be a comedian when she grows up. Like, what advice can you give me to help with that? And I said, you should stop loving her. <laughs> dinner the other night and there was a, a bro sitting next to me but he was talking about his grieving process. He was a grieving bro and like grieve, everybody grieves differently but he was just like, you know man it's like it hits me the hardest in the morning and I just like don't know how to cope with it. 
Steve Martin movie called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Recommend that. And uh, he has a book, he has another book that he wrote um, called The Pleasure of My Company about an agoraphobic guy. It's really funny. Uh, Shop Girl. I mean, personally, I come from very serious stock. And so that's, I think, partly why I, I'm obsessed with comedy. And like Steve Martin, he said in the book, uh, watching comedy was one of, the, one of the few things his family did together. My family did the same thing. We sat around watching like uh, Marx Brothers movies and things like that, and Bob Hope and whatever else was on TV. But um, here, I have some utensils. And this is the vegan version, which honestly, I don't know if it's very good. I kept trying to cook the shit out of this, but it, this is buckwheat flour. This is beautiful. And flax seeds and yeah. coconut flour and, and coconut milk. Also, before I forget this, because mm -hmm. um, I kept meaning to say it, Storm, your song, I didn't make the connection until I read Born Standing Up, but that long refrain of the ha 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 ha, I like found myself like, I was like, okay, it's gonna resolve into something and then I'm gonna laugh then. But it didn't resolve, <laughs> and I just started laughing in like the places. Oh, yeah. Like it, it very, just continued. Yeah. So That's good. a really good Like in the way that he talks yeah. about it, I was, and then I looked around shit, and I was like, no, everyone's laughing. But no one's but laughing why? at the same time. No, but it was the same thing. It was, it was, it was how he... <laughs> it was he really, really great. It was, it was very Steve Martin-esque. And I actually didn't get the rest. I didn't get that. I thought it was fantastic. I was, was feeling that when it was happening. It was yeah, I was, like, <laughs> I was like, this is It was uncomfortable. Connection. It was awesome. It was so great. And I also thought that Steve Martin has such a... He has like, like a craftsman's approach to a creative thing. Like he just keeps working at the skill. You yeah, know, same way that you're talking about it, John, like, the he... The same way that I don't. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that you <laughs> just, like, he just works at the thing as a skill in a way that I don't think I've read a lot about. Like, creative people, they're inspired, and they they stay up all night, and they do this thing, and it's, right. I don't think he mentioned passion once in the whole book. Oh, that's a good point. Right. But... He was. He, there's no reason why you well, would continue to do this thing. Right. He just doesn't. I, I mean, that's how I took he it. Doesn't, he doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't romanticize way. the passion aspect. But you can he tell. He goes to work like a plumber. He's right. Like, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna do this thing. I'm gonna get better at it every day. And that was really inspiring to me. But, but he wouldn't. That that wouldn't happen if he didn't have the passion. So exactly. I, I love how he said that. It's um, actually easy to be great. Like you can be like great on one night, but it's that's harder really to be good and yeah. consistently. Yeah. That was a really interesting like, quote, right? Oh, that's so cool. I, I want to someday be good. I was just like, <laughs> Maybe. last night I was, uh, I was off topic. I was just acting this cherry orchard thing. And on day one, I was like, oh yeah, I really know that. On day two, I was like, eh. I know. And then I thought I about that quote. I've had that experience. It's true, like sometimes I'm good so and it's, it's like luck, but to be really good, it's just a, but it takes that kind of like self-control endurance thing. that that oh, is required that you have to put yourself on the road or something like that where you just it's, you're almost claustrophobically forced into like doing it over and over and over and over again yep. to, to achieve that kind of understanding and the way that he broke through to incorporating his physicality into it and making it so that he completely uh, integrated his body and his mind into this art form. It was a really compelling read. His choice to make albums where you cannot see him moving was so yeah. bold. He mentioned how conscious a choice it was to do something where you can't see him, B, 
being such a physical comedian. I hadn't seen him, and I, I mean, I had seen him on Saturday Live done do a few things, but there's a whole sketch in there about, yeah, it's called Let's Get Small, and he's, he's kind of making fun of the drug culture and saying, like, I mean, you know what it is. It's a deal, man. I love to get small. Um, I knew I shouldn't get small when I'm driving, but uh, I was driving around the other day. And it's in the record. You don't even you don't even know what he's doing, but I'm picturing him like doing this. I mean, what's not funny about I'm so depressed today? I just found out this death thing applies to me. That's fucking hilarious. That's great. Yeah. Credit yeah. to him. Excuse me. I never knew the source of that, but I grew up. Yeah. I was born in '86, and I heard that all the time. Yeah. I did. Uh, and I think it, li- it lived for decades. The long, yeah. the long excuse me. Uh, most people will just do it and not even know why. Could I have more unloved parent pancakes? They're actually really good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Are you enjoying your joyless parent I, pancakes? I love. It's actually funny because my I hated pancakes, real pancakes, when I was a kid, and my parents would all would be so excited when I went to sleepovers because that's when they were allowed to have pancakes. Also, it's um, you'll have to put a picture up. It's really rare to see food that's like black. Yeah, yeah. It's not like charred. charred. Well, that's what you need sometimes to make comedy is a darkness. Pancake ashes. Darkness in your pancakes. But, um, so I already said I come from serious stock. It made me think of um, something you told me, Storm, a couple years ago about your family and how your... Is it okay if I talk about this? It depends. What it All right, is. we can edit it out if you're not comfortable. But no, just how you, like your father w- would always be like quipping at the table, and everything was a joke. And so you came to really actually value just pure sincerity, and without you know any of the charm and the jokes. Yeah, no. Even the most serious things in my family are discussed by literary reference and witty allusion. To- my family is guilty of that. We have interesting approaches to every serious topic, which is like a lot of dark humor, often. <laughs> you, John, do you come from serious stuff? Uh, my father liked to joke a lot, I guess, but yeah, I, yeah, I think that's right. But I mean, neither of my parents were at all, I shouldn't say that they weren't intellectuals. There were some really good books on the shelf, and my father must have read some of them, but um, he, he never seemed very literary or very, uh, you know, it was always like a wisecrack and a pretty, simple wise, wise crap. Like, you know, like, oh, I'm thirsty, and he'd say, no, it's not, it's Sunday. You know, that kind of thing. Just like, I was like one of his favorites. You know, those are called dad jokes now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, guess what is the worst line in the whole book? Guess. Is this like objectively measured? You got it? You figured it out? <laughs> yes, I have it. It is, he was sharp as cheddar. His memory was sharp as cheddar. I thought that was just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> he was describing Carl Reiner. And I was like, sharp as cheddar? Ugh, terrible. <laughs> Towards the end of the book, he was... He was tired? Yeah, I know. He's trying to finish it up. You know, yeah. It's like, all right. I, that's, that might be true, but I don't think that makes the line any better. I was about to quote my Theodore Adorno quote, which is still uh, vestigially my signature on my Yahoo account, if you email me. Um, Laughter, whether conciliatory or terrible, always occurs when some fear passes. It indicates liberation from either physical danger or from the grip of logic. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, you hear a lot of laughter too. in horror movies, you know, like yeah. in the audience, you know, right after yeah. like a really scary part. People yeah. are watching. So it's yeah. a, that oh. release yeah. valve yeah. that Seymour fucked with. I actually laugh when I'm very scared. 
mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. screaming or like so going through like a horror house like which I don't actually like doing mm -hmm. I'm laughing wow. from fear like if you didn't see me you would think I was watching something really funny but I'm actually like horrified and wow. that's my instinct is to laugh <laughs> I'm not afraid of that <laughs> <laughs> wow. yeah so you know thanks tonight I'll be making space Don't worry, I'll wait As long as it takes As long as it takes For you to doing the Johnny Carson show, like an alien abduction. I remember very little of it, though I'm convinced it occurred. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting. You know, he, he had that experience of performing <coughs> and then there's so much pressure that you come away from it like, what just happened? You know, what's my name? Okay, something happened, okay. Yeah, I think thing. there's nothing like today. I don't think there's anything like doing Johnny Carson was. Now. No, well there's no... Yeah. There's no nationally right. 
Yep. You know, there were three networks, and the only yeah. thing on 11.30 at night, if you were a comic, I think, you know, weeknights was, uh, was Johnny Carson. I mean, YouTube is now that, you know what I mean? Now everyone's like, oh, I watched Louis C.K. on YouTube. But there's no like. It's not centralized. Right, there's no yeah, centralized that's, thing. That's, that's what, yeah. So y there isn't that sense of intensity. Mm -hmm. I remember feeling this once in my life, I think, when I did, you know, one of those big festivals in Washington, D.C. And it was actually before I had a big song. And a pretty, HF Festival? Yeah, HF Festival, right? I went there when I yeah. was a kid. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> so I did that show, and it was like 20,000 people, and that was easily. 20 times as many people as I had ever performed in front of before. I mean, like, that feeling, I've never felt since, you know. That's just yeah. like that one immediate, like, rush. And yeah, I'm convinced it occurred. I remember before and after, but not during. <laughs> I listened in the van to Straight Outta Compton right before to get hopped up. That's, That's awesome. I got, like, ready for that show. That's really cool. <laughs> Despite a lack of natural ability, I did have the one element necessary to all early creativity, naivete. That fabulous quality that keeps you from knowing just how unsuited you are for what you are about to do. I, I, I had written that quote. <laughs> I love that quote. And there's another one. No harm in charging oneself up with delusions mm, between moments of valid too. inspiration. Yeah, I love that. I love yeah. that quote too. Yeah, we'll get pick another. John has been saying that about been the tar pit. Like, yeah. well, and music, actually. No, it's like life, you know, trick yourself sometimes. <clears throat> but also, like, sometimes if you know the rules too well, you're confined by the rules. Yeah. A yeah. lot, like... And you would never try yeah. if you knew all the complexities or the, if, you know, it's, it's better just to think, yeah, I could do this. It's so, yeah, it's, it's great. Okay. Uh, the one I pulled out of the, what are we calling this? The conch of questions. The conch of questions. We've all had a good time tonight, considering we're all going to die. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> that was like such a nice closer. Go ahead, <laughs> read that one. Son, you have an oblique sense of oblique humor. Oblique sense of humor. Who said uh, that? Oh, El no, Elvin. No, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's oblique. Oblique. I love the way it was spelled. Son, you have an oblique. oblique sense of humor. Well, he's no Charlie Chaplin. That's what his father oh, said yeah. to him. His, his after loving father. Oh, after the I have all sorts of things to say yeah. about that. Yeah? Parental disapproval really is a wonderful thing. Right? It really spurs um, so really, many great so much. things. Yeah. I feel like despite your serious family and my laughing family, <laughs> we both have families that severely disapprove of our careers. And oh, yeah. This is a wonderful thing. I know. And look at us now, enjoying the hell out of each other <laughs> and what we're doing. And our work, exactly. The more physically uncomfortable the audience, the bigger the laughs. We watched a couple different clips of him. Like we watched a clip from 1974, and then we watched a clip from 1979, mm. when he was like playing to a huge room. It was like a, it was, Stadium. I don't think it was, yeah, it was, uh, so weird. And, but, and uh, some of the material was the same, and the audience was ready for it. They were ready for the jokes. So he had to work differently, you know, yeah, he, had yeah. to, he had to work bigger. It's just interesting watching him trying to get the audience in the earlier stuff and the in the later stuff just kind of flowing with with them, you know, and yeah. making up other little like I things mean, to do. I mean, those stadium shows were more like he's a rock star performing hits yeah. that people already know, yeah, and they yeah. want to hear him perform those hits, even though they already know the punchline. It, it's like they're gonna laugh again, remembering the first time they heard it, mm -hmm. rather than like actually be stimulated to laughter in an organic way. And I think that was kind of unprecedented. Yeah. 
I mean, he talks a little bit about how it, playing those big stadiums fucked with his timing, but it was interesting in that video even with that, he was still able to respond in time to a heckler in a really brilliant exactly. way, you know, just right on the spot. Somebody yelled at him, you're nuts! And then he looks down at his fly like, oh my God, is my fly open? He's like, oh, I thought they were hanging out. Or his one kind of standard line for hecklers, which was, I remember my first beer. <laughs> That's a good one. That was a good one, I underline that. This so-called comedian should be told that jokes are supposed to have punchlines. The most serious booking error in the history of Los Angeles music. I just like to hear that too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Some of the bad reviews. Yeah. About Charlie's song, I just love that the, his first bad review was like the incentive. It's uh, kind of like disapproving parents. Even well, he harder. said like, they'll get it later. Yeah, that was some of the humor. He was like, they'll get it later when they're thinking about it. <laughs> and I mean, can you imagine that being like the the goal? I mean, that was just so so different, you know? Yeah, it's a potentially knock at the laugh here's a in here's the a, moment. Here's a takeout container for the laughter you're going to have later. <laughs> for, for the comedy. You can enjoy it later. Can I have that to go, please? Thanks for coming out and, yeah. It's fun and, and delicious. Yeah. yeah. So delicious. I'm into those pancakes. All right, you guys. We had a lovely time. And next time, I'll make no punchline punch. Well, I hope, um, can't wait for next time. And you know, you guys are welcome in my kitchen anytime. Bush Book Club, ep yeah. episode three, podcast episode three. Steve Martin, thank you, Steve Martin. Thank you, Steve Martin. Thank you, Steve yeah. Martin. Thanks, Steve Martin's dad. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode three. Hear the songs individually and download them from our Bandcamp page, bushwickbookclub.bandcamp.com. Watch video of the show on our YouTube channel and friend us on the Facebooks. Visit our website, bushwickbookclub.com. The episode is recorded and produced by Lusterlit, which is me and Charlie playing our songs about books, and we're at lusterlit.com. The next Bushwick Book Club show is July 11th at Barbez, Again, featuring new songs inspired by Amy Schumer's book, The Girl with the Lower Back Tattoo. Hope you can make it to Park Slope. Bye now. <laughs>